Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Welcome again to Kings Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, Pastor Johnny here, excited to be bringing the word to you today. Now, a couple things before we jump in. Uh, We posted a video earlier this weekend uh, and just talked about uh, some exciting news about when we're going to be coming back and worshiping uh, back together here on premises. That's going to be June 7th. That's three weeks away. And we're going to make sure that we have many, many things in place to allow for social distancing uh, and all of that. So please uh, go back to our Facebook page, check it out, uh, you know, listen to the details. And we look forward to seeing you uh, here in three weeks. And for those of you that have never been on premises, you've just started watching online, we highly uh, look forward to seeing you and want to just welcome you into our family. Uh, So we all are just excited about June 7th and worshiping on premise together once again. Uh, You know, we've been going through this series over the last few weeks, but God, and we're continuing that series today. And uh, we started out a few weeks ago, and we talked about the fact that the world may write us off. The world may, uh, you know, just not think that we're anything, but God is not done with us. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And then after that, we talked about how, you know, we may be in difficult circumstances, but God remembers us in that place. Often he calls us to that difficult circumstance, and then he empowers us through it because he remembers what he has promised us. Last week, we talked about how in the middle of those circumstances, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to understand the blessings of God unless we are walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And, you know, we understand that God intends those circumstances for good. So last week, uh, we talked about how the fact that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has conceived what God has prepared for those that love him, but his spirit reveals them to us. And it's because his spirit searches the depths of God. You know, we cannot experience or understand or grasp the blessings that God has for us in a surface level or flesh-driven relationship with him. Rather, we must have an intimate walk with him, and that can only happen through his spirit. We said that, you know, we can't give sin or our flesh a vote in how we live our lives. That sin nature, that, that flesh was crucified with Christ, and we must acknowledge that Christ was the only one that resurrected. Uh, we know that our unrighteousness um, it clouds our vision and our ability to, uh, to embrace God's revelation and that our flesh, it can't please God. It sets us, sets us at odds with him. And so what we need to realize is that flesh, it, it, it needs to be set aside. We can't allow it to rule our life. We can't allow it to dictate what we do. We can't listen to it. Rather, we have to listen to God because that unrighteousness prevents us from seeing his plan or his will and walking in it, but it's through Christ that the full revelation of God, the full understanding of his blessing is revealed. And so we must go to him and surrender to him instead of our flesh. And we know that when we do that, the promised reward for those or for a life that is led by the Spirit, it's indescribable, it's eternal. Peter said that when we get into the kingdom, that we will have a rich welcome into God's kingdom when we surrender to the Lord. And so we know that all of this is made possible through the sacrifice of Christ and when we walk in the Spirit instead of 
the flesh. And we're going to take that a little bit further today. We talked last week that it's important to have this conversation, attacking it from multiple angles. And that's what we're going to do today. Because I think oftentimes, you know, we still walk in the flesh, even when we say that we're trying to accomplish the things of God. We might try to fool ourselves, maybe even try to fool God and say, well, I'm doing what God wants me to do, or I'm trying to accomplish his will. But we can't do that in our flesh. I think it's obvious that there's an imbalance there. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. But before we do, let's just pray and ask, ask God that, you know, we can see that imbalance, that we can see the weakness of our flesh, we can see the deceptiveness in our own hearts and our own wills, and that he would just speak to us and reveal that he is our source, he is our power, he is the, the way that we have strength in life. Let us just be impacted by his truth today so that it can change how we live every day. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we surrender this time to you. God, we give it to you. We look forward to what you're going to speak to us through your word, Lord. And we just give you permission to challenge us. We give you permission, God, to just reveal our sin to us. Reveal the things where we are not walking in your will. Show us those things. Show us where we're trying to do things on our own. Where we're listening to our flesh. Where we're listening to our own heart, our own will, and not to you. Lord, let your voice be so plain and clear in our ear. Let it echo in our spirit, drawing us closer to you. Let someone's life be changed. Let someone's eternity be changed today. God, we surrender ourselves completely to you, and we look forward to what you're going to do through your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage uh, that we're going to start with today is found in Psalm 73, and it's verses 25 through 26, and it says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love how this passage starts off. Whom have I in heaven but you? you. This must be our heart today. This must be, you know, how we pursue the Lord, that there is nothing, nothing that we could desire besides God. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the, the words that are used here. It doesn't say uh, that there's nothing that I desire in the world more than you. It doesn't say that there's nothing in this world that we desire more than God. Rather, it says that there is nothing on this earth, nothing in, in heaven that we would desire besides God. You might say, well, that's just semantics, but I would tell you, you know, that I, I believe that the word choice is intentional. And let me, let me just, you know, kind of challenge you with this. Husbands, how many of you would be okay if your wife desired other men as long as she desired you more? Wives, how many of you would be okay if your husbands desired other women as long as he desired you more? None of us would be okay with that. Jesus talked about if we you know, commit lust in our mind, if we look after someone else, we've already committed adultery. And so what it says in, in all of this is that when we desire something even along, the, along with God, or just even if it's less than him, it is spiritual adultery, and it breaks God's heart. You see, we can't, there's nothing that we should be desiring besides God. There's no second place here. It's all Or nothing, we must desire God and God alone. Whom have we in heaven but him? There is nothing on earth that we desire besides God. Like the psalmist said, my heart or my strength, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my portion. God is the strength of my heart forever 
and ever. There is nothing, nothing that we should desire in heaven or earth besides God. Paul talked about this in Galatians chapter 6, and I want to just read a verse to you. It's Galatians 6.14. It says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Obviously, the imagery in this passage is very strong. I think the word crucified is intentional. And, it, you know, he's bringing in, you know, kind of the symbolism because Christ was crucified. And it's through Christ's sacrifice. It's through his death on the cross that the world is crucified to Paul. And the, the, he is crucified to the world. What does this mean? It's not that the world is just dead, but it's like it's executed. It's, it's power, it's life, it's influence. There's a definitive end. It is over. The, the world has no hold on him any longer. But notice that Paul doesn't leave it there. He says that the, that the world has been crucified to him and he has been crucified to the world. So the point that we have to realize is Paul is saying, the world has no hold on me and I have relinquished my hold on the world. We must walk in that same, in that same vein. The world cannot have any hold on us and we must relinquish our hold on the world. And all for what? It's all done for the cross of Christ. Like the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing in this earth that I desire besides you. And again, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, but God is my strength and my portion forever. As I was studying that passage and just kind of thinking about you know, how to bring that into, you know, greater understanding and under the light of Christ, just so much truth is inherent there. And I think it's important for us to dive into what the words flesh and heart mean and what they mean in the original language to help us gain a better understanding of what this but God that we're studying today means. So let's start with flesh. Let, what, let's start with what it means when he says that his flesh may fail. Now, the original word for flesh in the passage, it means many things. It can mean, you know, my flesh, my body. It can mean my relatives. The word could mean my food. It can mean strength. But I think what, what the writer there is saying, like all, to say that it's just strength would be, you know, accurate, but it's not sufficient. It, it's so much bigger than that. I think what the writer of this psalm is saying is kind of this comprehensive definition saying, if my flesh, if everything in me and around me that I draw strength from, if that were to fail, if that were to fail me, then I have nothing to fear because God, he is still the strength of my heart. He has stilled my portion forever and ever. And I think this is one of those things that, you know, we can hear, we can, you know, agree with. Oh, it sounds great. And, and it's something that, you know, in our spirits even, we can say, yes, I want to, you know, try to attain that. But when it comes down to actually living like this, I think it's a little bit differently. Or I think it happens a little bit differently because what happens in those hard times? Where's the first place that we typically go to? We typically retreat into our flesh. We typically say, you know, how can I, um, how can I fix this? How can I control it? Or, or maybe it's just me. Maybe that's just what I do. But I, I believe that you might be like me. That when you're confronted with a difficult situation, you often will try to figure out in your own mind, in your own knowledge, according to your own strength, according to your flesh, how you can resolve that situation. But God wants us to understand that when all of that fails, we still have hope because he is our strength forever. 
I think, you know, even in this place, like I said earlier, you know, there may be things that we try to do that are, are spiritual. We maybe even, we try to justify this in, in the hard time or in the good time. We might even try to justify operating in our flesh by saying that we're still trying to accomplish God's will. But I want you to understand something. If we try to accomplish God's plan through our flesh, that puts us outside of his will, and we will never, ever succeed. I think David is a good example. He provides many examples for us, King David does. But there's an example that I think helps illustrate this. In 2 Samuel 24, there's a story about how God gets angry with David, and he incites David to take a census of the nation. And, uh, you know, it's not perfectly clear why God gets angry with David, but I think we can infer that it's because David was having some, some issues with pride. You can read before um, this, this passage and see that, you know, David and his armies had just um, defeated some, some other battles. And so certainly they're probably thinking and feeling good about themselves and their own strength and, you know, having some pride rise up in them. Well, God, he's not interested in the power of David's armies. He wants David to recognize that it's through his power, it's through the Lord himself that David is successful in his reign and role as king. And so he incites David to take a census of the nation. Even his advisors say, David, don't do this. It's not a good idea. But David still does it anyways. And he goes out and he has all of his troops counted and all of, you know, kind of just getting uh, an understanding of the breadth of his influence, the breadth of his power, the magnitude of his wealth, you know, how big is his army, how big is his kingdom. And once all of this is done, David acknowledges, he realizes his sin. He realizes, you know, that this is something that he should not have done. Now, this is probably something that a king might do. Right? And so David probably thinking to himself, hey, as king, I should know how big my kingdom is. As you know, commander of these armies, I should know how big and strong these armies are. So he's probably thinking, I'm working to accomplish the things that God has anointed me to do. But God was never interested in how big David's army was. God was not interested or concerned with how big David's kingdom was. God was concerned with David's heart. He was concerned with the inside. And so when David acknowledges his sin, he goes to God and repents. But God, being a God of justice, requires punishment. He says to David, okay, David, you can choose the punishment that I'm going to inflict on you. You can have three days of pestilence where there's going to be a plague. You can have three months of, of, of uh, fleeing from enemies or three years of a famine. Well, David says to God, well, you know, I, I don't, don't let me have to flee from my enemies. Don't let my people fall to someone else. And so there were three days of pestilence and a plague, and 70,000 people died. 70,000 people died because of David's pride. 70,000 people died because David tried to accomplish in his flesh what God never would have asked him to do. And I, to me, I just, you know, for the leaders that are watching this and paying attention, and listen, we are all leaders of someone. Leaders, your actions have consequence. When you try to do what God has called you to do in your flesh, instead of in the Spirit, instead of allowing Him to lead you, that action will have consequence, not just on you, but on the people that you lead. 70,000 people died because of what David did, because he tried to accomplish God's will, or he tried to accomplish the role that God had called him to in his flesh instead of the spirit. We know that God wasn't interested in the size of David's army. He found that he had half a million soldiers. That was inconsequential to God. How do we know this? 
Because when God sent Samuel to anoint David, David, we talked about this a few weeks ago, David was the runt. He was the youngest of eight brothers. His family didn't even think that he was important enough to be there when Samuel came. They left him in the field tending sheep. And every, every brother that Samuel went to to evaluate, is this the one that God wants me to anoint? God would say, I'm looking at the heart. I'm not looking at the outside. Well, David, in fulfilling this role, he was looking and trying to bring light to the outside, not considering the inside, the spirit that God had put inside of him. And there was a, a significant consequence to that. You see, God chose him because at that point, at that point he was, had a heart after God, and he, he abandoned that for a while, and that created this situation of sin and consequence. The lesson for David and the lesson for us is that we can't try to accomplish God's will in our flesh. Rather, we must try and work to allow his spirit to do that. Now, there's a, a passage in Isaiah that helps drive this point home, and it says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. This passage is it's a specific indictment against the, the Israelites because they would want to go back to Egypt, the nation that had enslaved them for 400 years, and they would look to that nation to help them instead of crying out to God, that they would look to number their chariots and number their horsemen to understand their strength instead of leaning on God, who is their source of strength. Now, David, he wasn't going to Egypt, but in this census, he was absolutely counting his chariots. He was absolutely counting his horsemen. And the indictment against him is how can you count those and not go and seek the help? Seek the one. Seek the Lord for that help. He is the one that you must go to. You know, we must recognize this and learn from it. We must realize that, you know, when we are overcome, when our, when our strength is overcome in our flesh, that it's only the spirit that we have left and we must go to the Lord. We see an example of this actually in the story of Gideon. I mean, here's a man who had to face the Midianites, 135,000 people that Gideon had to go and fight. You know, at the beginning of all of this, he might have had 10,000 soldiers. But by the time that God was done, God whittled that army down to 300 men. But because they didn't put their hope in their strength or in their numbers, their hope was in God. They didn't even have to fight the battle. Those 135,000 Midianites, they turned on themselves and the 300 men that were left, all they had to do was go gather the plunder You see the lesson there in contrast to what happened with David is they put their hope in the Lord. They weren't concerned with their numbers or their strength. Rather, they were recognizing that God was the one that would provide help and and God provided indeed. Now for David, going back to that story, you know, I don't want to just leave it there because there is a point of restoration that we must talk about. You see, after those three days and those 70,000 people died, David, he repents again, and he, he says to the Lord, you know, I want to perform a sacrifice. And so he goes to a, a place, a specific land, and he sees a, a man named Aruna. And Aruna has a plot of land that David wants to use to perform a sacrifice. Now, as being king, you know, it's within his rights to go and tell Aruna, give me this land. But he doesn't want to demand the land. He wants to purchase it from Aruna. Now, Aruna, he says to the king, he, because of his great respect, and love for the king. He says, king, you can have the land, you can have the ox, you can have whatever you want. I will give it to you. I won't charge you for it. 
But we can see that David understands God's heart here. And we can see that he is to this place of repentance and depending on God. Because in 2 Samuel 24, at the very end, verses 20 through 24, it says this. Arunah said to King David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord, the, your God, accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I want to just read that to you one more time. You need to underline this in your Bible. You need to just let, let these words jump off the page. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. You know, what, what, if, we, if you were not, I were there, if Aruna had come to us, if we were there ready to uh, perform this sacrifice and Aruna said, here's the land, here's the wood, here's the, the, the animals for the offering, I give them to you. We probably would have said, well, thanks Aruna, that's great, that's so nice of you. But David He knew that God required a sacrifice and that sacrifice had to cost him something. If the sacrifice didn't cost him something, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was just an offering. And there is a difference in in it. It's significant. And I'm not just talking about money. Listen, our finances, our talents, our time, all must be, should be sacrificed for the Lord. We must give them to the point where it costs us something because when it costs us something. It demonstrates where our value is. It demonstrates where our focus is. It demonstrates where our dependence is. It shows that we're not dependent on our own strength. We're not dependent on what we can do with our time. We're not dependent on what we can do with our own money. Rather, we surrender all of those to God and let him demonstrate his power in each and every area of our life. We must acknowledge that the world has been crucified to us. We are crucified to the world, and there is nothing in this world that we desire besides God. By sacrificing his wealth, David demonstrated where his heart was aligned, and by sacrificing those things on ourselves, whether it's finances, our time, or our talent, we demonstrate the same thing. When we look at this, the, the things of our flesh, we need to realize is what the psalmist said, our flesh will fail. There's a point where all of the things that we might gather strength from, where they no longer have strength to offer. What are we going to do in that moment when we have put our hope in those things instead of God? We must instead abandon those things and put our hope in the Lord. The psalmist went on and beyond talking about the flesh failing. He says that our heart is subject to failing as well. Now, our heart is, is more than just the seat of our emotions. It's more than just all, all of those things. Rather, here it translates into the inner man, the place of our will, the place of our, of our consciousness and our courage. And it's a, it's a very important point for us to understand, especially in our culture today. You see, our culture today bolsters our own will. It helps us to kind of uh, believe this, this fact that you know, we can govern ourselves by our will, by our emotions, by the things that make us you know, feel good. And, you know, when you look at advertisements, when you look at entertainment, when you look at the technology 
that we use, it is all catering to our own gratification. It's all catering to our flesh. It's catering to our emotions. It's to this point where if it feels good for me, then it is good for me. And if it feels good for you, then, then it is good for you. It teaches us, again, to believe that you know, we can govern ourselves by our will, by our, our emotions, by what our feelings are. But we know that this is wrong. The problem with this is twofold. First, just because it, is, or just because it feels good doesn't mean that it is good. I mean, sin feels good in the moment. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it, right? But sin, in the moment where it feels good, that, that, that feeling is fleeting. Because like Paul says, at some point, that sin, we're going to look back on it with shame. We're going to look back on it with regret. And that sin only leads to death. We have to acknowledge this. We have to know that, that our sin nature, the nature that's inside of us, it is, it is set out or it's sub- subject to being deceived because it was born in deceit. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. This confirms the deceptiveness of our own heart. It tells us that our sin nature is deceptive because it was born in deceit. Go back into the garden. You see, our heart wasn't meant to be led by sin. Our heart wasn't meant to be led by our flesh. Our heart wasn't meant to be led by you know, the things that are contrary or in conflict with God. Our heart was meant to be led by the Spirit. Our heart was meant to be led by Christ. But because of what happened in the garden, because the devil, he goes and he deceives Eve, and Eve gives in to that deception. She surrenders her will. She surrenders her heart to sin. Every single one of us are born into a condition where our hearts are deceived and led by sin. It's a battle that we have to fight from the moment of of, of birth until the moment where we see Christ face to face. The encouraging point for each of us, though, is when we surrender to God, when we invite Christ into our life, we are no longer alone in that battle We have to understand that our heart and our will will naturally want what is against God. We have to approach this this, this situation with a natural distrust of our flesh, our natural distrust of our heart. We have to consider every whim. We have to evaluate every desire. We have to determine, is this action, is this thought, does does it gratify my flesh or does it glorify God? Paul put it this way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, of, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there's a lot here, and I don't want you to miss any of it. Honestly, I think it's, it's easy to kind of focus on the encouragement. It's easy to focus on the promise that we don't wage war as the world does, that we have, you know, weapons and, and, and you know, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments. We demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. But we can't just focus on that without realizing the explicit and direct condition of doing that. 
Paul says that we don't wage war as the world does, but we have that, demo, or that, that divine power. But how can we do that? How can we walk in it? He says that we don't wage war like the world does. The implication is that we therefore don't live like the world does. This is confirmed at the end of the passage when it says that we take captive every thought. We take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. The image is critical here. The imagery is critical here. Rather than allowing ourselves to be subject to our heart, rather than allowing ourselves to be subject to our flesh and the sin nature that's inside of us, rather we take captive every single thought. We become crucified to the world. The world becomes crucified to us by painstakingly evaluating every single thought that passes through our mind. Every single one of them. Does it glorify God? Does this thought, does this action sound like the Lord? Does it reflect him? Does it reflect my flesh? Does it reflect my my sin nature? Or does it honor God? Every single thought, we must evaluate them. But going beyond the evaluation, when we identify a thought, when we identify an an, an action or, or something that we are thinking about that doesn't glorify God, we don't just say, okay, well, there's something that doesn't glorify God. What did Paul say? He says we put it in irons. We capture it. We put it and we make it subject to God, obedient to Christ. And that can only happen through the cross. It can only happen through a relationship with God. This is imperative. This is part of our walk. It must happen every single time we think. Every single time that we act. We must take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ when we look at this, if this is not universally applied, it, will not be, it won't be happening and we, it won't be successful. We have to operate with an inherent distrust of our, of our flesh and a total surrender to the Spirit. This is something we have to practice over and over and over and over. And as we mature in our walk with God, as we grow closer and closer to Him, the beauty in Scripture, the promise that we have, is that over time, the nature that we were born into, that sin nature that we were born into, that was crucified with Christ, if we surrender to him on a daily basis, if we do take every single thought captive, what will happen is the thoughts that aren't reflecting Christ, the ones that don't glorify him, they will begin to be fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer. Because what's happening is that the nature that's inside of us is being transformed into his nature by his word, by a connection with his spirit, and by our walk with him. But even during that transformation, our wills, our, our motivation, our courage, our consciousness, our, our willingness to continue on, at some point they may just raise the, the white flag and say, I give up, I've had enough, I'm done. There may be a point where the burdens uh, that we face, they become too much and they are, they, they, they're overwhelming and they bring us to a breaking point. And at that breaking point, it is, it, we must remember that it's not our will, it's not our heart that continues to motivate us forward. Rather, it's the spirit that God put inside of us that will sustain us, that God will often take us beyond the point that our wills, our own wills can sustain 
Because he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to understand and and realize the great power that he has. That it's only through him that we can accomplish the things that he has called us to. And they are greater than anything that we could accomplish in our own power, under our own motivation. When we think about this, you know, again, Paul, he was brought to this point in his ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes about having a thorn in his side. Now he says that, you know, that there was this thorn in his side. It was a tormentor from Satan. We don't know if it was necessarily a demon. We don't know if it was, you know, a physical ailment. But what we do know is that Paul was at his breaking point because three times he asked God, he said, God, you got to take this away from me. You got you to deliver me from this. You got to help me here. But God refused to do that. He, 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 his will, Paul's will had given in he was past that breaking point, but God, instead of relieving it, and God, instead of you know, saying, okay, okay, Paul, I'll take that away, God speaks to him, and he says, I'm going to leverage your circumstance. I'm going to leverage this tormentor. I'm going to leverage this thorn in your side to teach you how to depend on me, to teach you what my power is really all about. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, uh, to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Listen, Paul, Paul was ready to give in. His flesh and his heart had failed. He asked God three times, take this away from me. But God wanted Paul to continually walk in the truth that his power, his grace was sufficient for him. God wanted Paul to realize that he, that the Lord was his source of strength and motivation. So instead of taking that away, He says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, what's exciting is I I, kind of dare you to go read this in a red-letter Bible. Because when you read it in a red-letter Bible, you know what you're going to find out? That these letters are red. And that tells us that it's actually Christ speaking to Paul in this time. And I love it because... Because Christ spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus. And here again, he is speaking to Paul. He says, that same grace that I called you with on the road to Damascus, the same grace that I saved you way back when, when you started this ministry, when I saved you from persecuting your, your, your now fellow believers, and I called you to this place where you would endure persecution, where you would endure all of this, that same grace that saved you then is powerful enough to sustain you right now. And the message for us is that same grace that saved us, that same grace that brought us from a place of death to life, that same grace is powerful enough in our weakness to sustain us where we are. And, and, and he said that my power is made perfect in that weakness. Now that, that is not to say that Christ's power was imperfect before Paul needed him. What he is saying is that in our weakness, Christ's power is put on complete display. So when we call on him, when we acknowledge that we are weak, when we are at the end of our rope and we say, God, I can't do it anymore. God, I don't have the motivation. God, I need you to help me. God's power 
is put on complete display. It is perfected in that situation. It is completely demonstrated to us and to all that see us and observe us that he is the one that will sustain us in that place. And I love Paul's response. We must echo that same response. He says, therefore, I'm not going to boast about anything of myself. I'm not going to boast about any of my accomplishments. I'm not going to boast about my ministry. I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to boast in the fact that I can't handle it. I'm going to boast in the fact that I am not strong enough because it is only in God where I am made strong. That is where we find our strength as well. Now, I'm sure that this lesson was important for Paul. He'd already been in ministry for 20 years when he wrote this. He, he was called into ministry in like 34 AD, and he writes uh, this, this letter to Corinth, 2 Corinthians. He writes that in about 57 AD. So he'd been in ministry for, uh, for about 23 years. Well, 10 years later, in 67 AD, he's writing to Timothy from a jail cell. And this is, you know, he knows that his death, his execution is imminent. He is waiting to die. And we can tell that the lesson that he learned back in, back in 2 Corinthians about God's power and his grace being perfected in Paul's weakness, that his grace was sufficient for him, it sustained him through the rest of his ministry because this is what Paul writes at the very end in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Now there is in store before me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed his appearing. Now I think about this verse, and I think about Charlie. You know, Charlie went home to be with the Lord this week. We we miss her, we love her. But I tell you, I know that she is dancing with God. I know that she is made whole. I know that when she saw the Lord, The Lord looked at her and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. I know that at the very end, Charlie could look back just like Paul. I've been poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And if Charlie were here speaking to you right now, she said, listen, she would say to you, listen, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. Not just for me, though, but for everyone who has longed for his appearing. So I just want to ask you, at the end of your days, will you be able to say that? You know, when we look at at Paul and he understands that he has been poured out, he understands that his strength is, is empty, his heart, his own will has been broken, but it's because he, he has surrendered to God. He lived surrendered to God. He walked in the grace that was sufficient for him, the grace that called him, and the grace that sustained him every single day. It's because of that that he knew that even though he had been poured out like a drink offering, he could look back and say that he finished the race. It wasn't because of his own strength. His own strength and his own will didn't bring him to the point of completion. Rather, it was the grace and power of the Holy Spirit of God that enabled him every single day. And he speaks of the hope that he has, and that hope is available not just for him, but for every single one of us that would long for Christ's appearing. I just want to talk to you for a moment. You need to understand the importance of the power of God's grace. You might be trying to fight your battle in your own strength right now. 
You might be trying to do the things even that God has called you to do in your own flesh, in your own power, trying, digging deep to find the motivation because you're just tired and you're ready to give in. I want you to understand today that as as the psalmist said, my flesh and my heart may fail. In fact, they will fail. But God, but God, he is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, when you take that moment, when you realize the power of that but God, that your flesh is weak, that your heart is deceptive, that your will is deceptive, and that you quit depending on those things and you depend on the grace that has called you, the grace that has saved you, it will sustain you every single day and bring you to that point where you realize the hope that is ahead of you. If you've never taken that step, I encourage you today, there is no better day, no better time than right now to surrender your life to God, to invite him to come in, to help you in that battle that I was talking about of sin against what is right. Let him come alongside you. He's already won that battle. If you've already received that gift of salvation, but you know that you've been walking in the flesh instead of the spirit, you know that you've put your, 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 your hope in your own power, your own knowledge, and your own motivation, just stop. <laughs> just, just surrender. Let this be a moment where you pivot and you say, okay, well, I'm going to surrender to God and I'm going to let his power, his grace, and his spirit sustain me. I invite you to pray with me now. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own. I, I, I come to you and I acknowledge what you have done. I, I know and believe that you came to this earth that you died on the cross, that your sacrifice, that your shed blood washed away my sins, that you rose again on the third day. God, I, I invite you to come into my life. Save me from my sin. Let that grace that you offered, Paul, let that grace just be poured over me. Lord, and let that grace sustain me every single day. Help me to walk in that into knowledge, Lord that your grace is sufficient, that your grace will, will empower me, Lord, to do the things that you have called me to do. Help me to walk as one of your children. Change me from the inside out. Lead me every single day. Help me to make the choice to surrender to you, to die to myself and follow you in every moment. In Jesus' name. For those that have already received that gift of salvation but need to pray about walking in the Spirit and in, in not giving into the flesh, pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Forgive me for abandoning that grace and thinking that it's not sufficient to sustain me or forgive me, God, for just walking under my own strength, for thinking that my heart could lead me, for thinking that I could get this done on my own. Forgive me for taking all the burdens on myself instead of laying them all down at your feet. Help me, Lord, to hear your voice speak to me, God. Show me what your will is. Show me how you will take that burden from me. Lord, that you will empower me through your spirit, that you will empower me through your grace, that your grace is sufficient for me, that your power is perfected in my weakness. Lord, let me quit boasting in my flesh. Let me quit boasting in my own motivation, in my own courage, in my own will, in my own heart. Lord, let me boast in my weakness that I can't get it done without you. Lord, I am at the end of my rope. Lord, be true to yourself and come and rescue me. Help me, Lord, to, to, to surrender to you in every single day and to walk in the power that only you offer. God, not for my glory, but for yours. 
Use me to magnify your name. Use me to further your kingdom. And I thank you for all of this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I just encourage you, as you go in the rest of this week, ask God to show you how powerful he is. Wake up every day and say, my heart and my flesh, they will fail me at some point, but God, he is my strength. He is my, the, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Surrender to him. Walk in the grace that he has given you that is sufficient for you. It called you and it will sustain you every day. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my prayer that God spoke to you through his word and that your life has been changed for all of eternity. Here at Kings Avenue Baptist Church, we are united in Christ and transformed by his love to bring our community into the family of God. We know that it is only through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we are brought together as one body. And that same sacrifice transforms us into his image so that we can go out on mission in hope to bring our community into God's family. If you don't have a home church, we absolutely invite you to come and join us on the mission that we have that God has given us to make a difference in our community for his kingdom. It's our prayer that God continues to speak to you and continues to use you and change you by his word. God bless.